This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 135, Loyalty. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Loyalty to an underachieving sports team can be noble. Loyalty to an abusive relationship can be destructive. It's all about finding a worthy cause, group, or individual. This week, we will discuss whether you can be both a Jew and a Christian and why you and I should care, the choice between patriotism and pragmatism in 17th century Jamaica, whether I swear to God is a confession or a blasphemy, and how choosing a side early maximizes the upside and minimizes the downside. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse number 11, reads, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in his epistles that whether you do or do not live your life under the law of Moses is your business. If Jesus is your Savior, if you have accepted him as Lord, if you have put him on in baptism, you can live your life as a Jew, you can live your life as a Gentile, it doesn't matter. Colossians 2 verse 16, don't let any man judge you in these kind of matters, whether you are participating or you are not. And so therefore, these Jewish Christians in the first century were doing no wrong by continuing to live according to their Jewish customs, keeping the Sabbath day, attending Jewish national festivals like Passover and Pentecost, avoiding certain foods, that sort of thing. But as AD 70 drew near, as the ultimate destruction of the Jewish state, which had been prophesied by Jesus himself and others as well, drew closer and closer, it was becoming more and more difficult for Jewish Christians to do service to both of these relationships, especially since the vast majority of their Jewish brethren had rejected Jesus and done so proudly and continued to do so. It was exceedingly awkward, no doubt, to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and honor the God of your ancestors with people who had vocally rejected everything that you stood for. The writer of Hebrews, whether it's Paul or anybody else, says there is rapidly coming a time when you may need to make a choice. This should not have been news to anyone. Jesus himself alluded to this any number of times. Jesus is preparing his disciples, and he's trying to prepare his Jewish comrades for the day where their nation was going to be held accountable for this horrible attitude that they had taken toward God's word in general and toward Jesus in particular. The Hebrew writer compares it to this great sacrifice, the sin offering that was offered in the wilderness at the tabernacle. And usually we focus on the piece of meat that was carved out of the animal and put on the altar. But Leviticus chapter 4, especially verse 21, emphasizes that the offal, the leftovers, this is part of the sin sacrifice too. The skin, the entrails, the various organs that were not appropriate for an offering, these were all bundled up and taken outside the camp and burned. That's part of the offering as well, getting rid of the trash, essentially. And the writer here says that's what they did to Jesus. Jesus was in the process of giving his life for the sins of mankind, and they treated him like garbage. They literally took him outside the camp 
and killed him, destroyed him. And now you get to choose. Are you going to be on the side of your Savior, who is outside the city gates, outside of proper Jewish culture, you might say? Or are you going to be on the side of those ones who are still on the inside who killed him? You need to decide how important Jesus is to you. And that's what makes this passage so relevant in the modern day, because we are very much in the same kind of category. You may not be a Jew, you may not be practicing the things of the law of Moses, but we still have this choice to make between our culture and our Lord. And especially in the United States, within my lifetime and many generations prior to this, we have been told that we can have both. In fact, being an American is good for being a Christian and vice versa. But as our culture continues to degrade, as we become more and more carnal, more and more worldly in our outlook in general, our entertainment, our school systems, our government processes, it becomes more and more awkward to be a part of these systems and be part of the things of God. If it sounds like I'm preaching revolution, I apologize. That's not the point. But you very well may, in your lifetime, be required to make a choice. Are you going to be an American or are you going to be a Christian? Are you going to be a part of your local club or are you going to be a Christian? Are you going to accept your friends or are you going to accept Jesus? Are you going to be a Republican slash Democrat or are you going to be a Christian? How important is Jesus to you? Is he important enough for you to go outside the camp? If being inside the camp with the people that you know, the people that you love, the people you care about, the people that you're used to, your culture, if being inside the camp means that you are showing disrespect to Jesus, that you are pushing him away from you, you are further degrading his reputation in your culture, then maybe it's time for you to make a choice. And let's make sure that we make the right choice. Let's be loyal to the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. And if it means being disloyal to the people who are closest to us, that's an indication we've chosen the wrong side. The Lord expects better out of us. This is what I've been reading. If you were the British governor of Jamaica in the 1660s, you slept with one eye open. The British were horribly outgunned and outnumbered in the Caribbean. Basically, the Spanish could take Jamaica anytime they were ready to make a concerted effort to do so. And with the king literally an ocean away, the governor oftentimes found himself in a position where he just had to do the best that he could, whether it did or did not fall in line with the official policy of the British Empire. That is the setting for Pirate Latitudes, a book written by Michael Crichton released shortly after his death. In Pirate Latitudes, the governor of Jamaica has the opportunity to win a tremendous victory over the Spanish in his area, and in so doing, make a little money for himself. But it required allying himself with what some people would have called a pirate. The governor would have quickly stepped in and said, no, he is not a pirate. It is against the British policy to associate with pirates. Pirates are illegal, and we execute pirates whenever they're found. But if a private citizen 
who happens to have a ship, who happens to have a crew for that ship, is willing to go into battle against the Spanish, why shouldn't they be allowed to do so? Why shouldn't we encourage them, in fact, to do so? It's a rather tenuous line to walk. The power of the king is at a great distance. He doesn't know what's happening in Jamaica, and one might argue he doesn't especially care about the nuts and bolts. He doesn't care how the sausage is getting made. He just simply wants Jamaica to be there and strong and powerful, and the governor to do what he has to do to get the job done. And so the governor is doing exactly that. Even if in the long term, it seems like what he is doing is contrary to the British interests. In the short term, he is absolutely pursuing the British interests. And as you read the book, of course, your sympathy is with the governor because the king doesn't know what he's doing and the governor is doing everything that he has to do under the circumstances. Allying yourself with a privateer, as they would be called rather than a pirate, seems the reasonable thing to do. It seems like it works for everybody. It's the pragmatic approach. And I think a lot of people look at our relationship with Jesus in the same kind of way. In theory, we are submitting to the king. He has laid down the law for us, and we are absolutely going to carry that law out. But here's the thing. The king isn't here, and I'm living my life in a hostile world where things are lined up against me and where it really seems that the strict letter of the law doesn't get the job done. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bend the rules a little bit. I'm going to make some accommodations here and there and ultimately accomplish what the king wants for me to accomplish in the big picture. And surely if great things are being accomplished, if the king's power is being consolidated, if the enemy is being defeated, that's the main thing. And I feel confident that if the king were here with me, he would approve of what I'm doing, even though technically speaking, it's exactly what he told me not to do. That might or might not work in 17th century politics. It does not work in 21st century Christianity or any other era. And the reason ought to be relatively obvious. Our Lord Jesus Christ does know our circumstances. And he does care, by the way, about our circumstances. A king that is far away in a political sense may or may not understand these things. But Jesus does. Jesus knows exactly what we are putting up with, and he has told us that his rules, his policies, are adequate for the situation. You don't have to believe that if you don't want to. Obviously, many people don't. But Jesus gives us his assurance that if you will be loyal to me, if you will trust me in these moments, including and particularly the moments when it looks like my plan won't work, if you trust in me, I will be with you, I will empower you, and I will reward you. And that's what faith is really all about. Trusting that God is going to accomplish his will even when it seems like his plan is hopelessly outdated, ridiculously underfinanced, or whatever other kind of obstacle you might want to talk about. Believing that Jesus can and will accomplish his will makes all the difference and will allow us to maintain our sense of loyalty to him in difficult circumstances. And let's be honest, the world that we're living in, it's all difficult circumstances. It's wall-to-wall difficult circumstances. There's always going to be an excuse to think that we should tweak God's plan, that we should depart from the rule that Jesus has given to us. But we also ought to remember the other distinction between the analogy in the book and what's actually happening in our life as Christians. Jesus knows right now where we stand. Jesus knows right now what we are doing how we are or are not trusting in him. 
And this same Lord, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the text says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, he is going to be the one who judges us. The words which I spoke will be the ones that judge you in the last day. John 12 and verse 48. When we remember that our Lord is present with us, that should keep us on track. Surely Jesus, if he is aware of our circumstances, if he knows what we are going through, his word will be adequate to every good work. Second Timothy 3 verse 16 and 17 tells us, if we will be loyal to him, he will be loyal to us. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 19 verse 11 and following about people who believed that the kingdom of God was going to appear in the very, very near future. He tells a story about a nobleman going off to receive a kingdom, and he gives these servants a certain amount of money. And one of them is able to accomplish great things, one of them is able to accomplish some things, and one of them doesn't accomplish anything because he doesn't try. Our task is not to try to figure out whether or not the master's plan is going to work. Our plan is to do what the first two servants did, do the best we can, and we'll probably have differing results with what he has given us. If we are unwise in our stewardship, if we are lazy in our stewardship, if we assume that God's plan is not going to work, we're the same as these ones who didn't want the king at all, the ones who are going to be destroyed in his presence, as the parable concludes. We don't want that. We want to be loyal to our king. We want to trust that he is going to empower us, that he's going to equip us, and ultimately he's going to reward us. That assurance is given to those who are found faithful, including and particularly those ones who are found faithful in difficult times. So let's not let our loyalty waver just because it seems like on the surface the plan is ill-founded. Jesus knows better than we do. We forget that sometimes. This is what I've been hearing. It's my personal view. The more elaborate and extensive the oath that is being taken, the less inclined I am to accept the person who's making the oath at his word. I'm generalizing here, of course. But it really does seem to me that when people go out of their way to swear, I swear, I swear, I swear, it implies desperation. If I don't swear, you're not going to believe me. I know you're not inclined to take me at my word normally, but I really, really need you to take me at my word now. And as a result of that, I will swear, and I'll swear, and I'll swear again. And oftentimes we swear on something. I'll swear on the Bible. I'll swear on the life of my kids. I'll swear on my grandmother's gravestone. I'll swear on the spirit of Bear Bryant, whoever it happens to be, whatever it happens to be, that attracts your loyalty. And in so doing, oftentimes these fake vows, these lying vows sometimes, wind up defaming the one that was so honored, so revered in our mind that we were willing to make the vow in their name in the first place. And such is certainly the case when we say, I swear to God. I don't believe in my life I have ever begun a sentence with those four words. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure I haven't. And the reason is that it was drilled into me from the very beginning, ever since I heard the word swear and I saw the word swear in the Bible, that this kind of oath-taking, generally speaking, is profane. 
it's not appropriate for us to drag the name of God into these kind of circumstances. I will emphasize here, at least in passing, that swearing in and of itself is not sinful. Swearing to God in and of itself is not sinful. Jesus himself takes an oath on the name of God at his trial in Matthew chapter 26, verses 64 and 65. The problem is not so much whether we do or do not use those four particular words. The problem is the context. The problem is the background. The problem is why we are making the oath in the first place. And going back to the point we were making before, when these oaths become a way of fortifying our own standing, when we feel like we are not believable under normal circumstances, and we feel like we have to bolster our reputation by dragging God's name or somebody else's name into this, that speaks to a character deficiency that is much deeper than whether we do or do not use the word swear. I think that's the point that Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 and following, he says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. This is an example of what I call, and what I've heard called most of my life, a not-but phrase. This is stretched out considerably more than, for instance, the phrase in John chapter 6, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. But it's the same basic construct. In John six twenty-seven, he's not saying that it's wrong to work for physical food. He is diminishing the importance of that so as to emphasize the importance of some other thing, in this particular case, working for spiritual things. Notice that's the same kind of construction here, although it takes considerably more words. Don't make an oath. Rather, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Jesus is saying your oath-taking is a reflection of who you are. And if you are the kind of person that has to testify and say, I swear to God, so that people will believe what you have to say, you have a much bigger problem than whether you are or are not taking oaths. We need to be people who say yes and mean yes, people who say no and mean no, and beyond that, people who are known to be that kind of person. We need to carry that reputation with us. When we say yes, everybody knows we mean yes. We don't tell lies. We don't testify falsely. That's not who we are. That's part of our character that we learn from Jesus, who always spoke the truth. There was no guile in his mouth, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. So the loyalty that we have to the Lord is not simply a matter of saying, I swear to follow Jesus Christ. If you choose to take some kind of oath along those lines, that's between you and the Lord. But that's not the main issue. The main issue is whether you are the kind of person who will be loyal to him under all circumstances. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Notice how all these thoughts in the same context fit together. We're talking about how committed we are to the things of Jesus. We need to be prepared to confess Jesus, not just prior to our baptism, but every single day. We are known by our neighbors as those who love the Lord, those who are committed to the Lord, realizing that that commitment is going to come at a tremendous cost. We will have to pay a penalty. We talked in the previous segment about going outside the camp. We may be called upon to do that, to leave things that are precious to us, leave people who are precious to us. Are we willing to do that? If our love for Jesus is greater than our love for father and mother, for son or daughter, then we are going to be willing to do that. We're going to be eager to do that. We want to take up his cross, and we want to be known as the people who do so. This is the oath that we take. And whatever terminology we use to affirm that oath, we need to be faithful to that oath every single hour of every single day. This is what I've been playing. Since we took a trip to the Caribbean in the second segment this week, I thought that we might return to Maracaibo. In Maracaibo, you are a privateer. You get to choose your battles. You get to go fight for whom you wish and fight against whom you wish. There are British interests. There are French interests. There are Spanish interests. You can try to pursue all of those things and probably lose. You can pursue none of those things and certainly lose. Or you can pursue one of them and pursue it really, really well. And if you're like me, you'll probably lose anyway. But I think... The reason that I fail in Maracaibo is not because I have a poor strategy. I think it's because I implement that strategy very poorly. I really think that what you need to do in a game like this is pick a side early. Decide who you want to be ultimately successful and then go out and make it happen. Now, the thing in the game is, of course, in the short term, sometimes you're better off fighting for the other side. But it's not about having the best turn you possibly can have. It's about having the best game you can have. And this is a philosophy that I really, really struggle with. I'm sure it's come up in times past. Being able to sacrifice short-term interests for long-term interests. I think success in our walk with Christ is going to work the same way. Ideally, early in life, or at least early in your walk of faith, you make a choice. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be the best Christian I possibly can be. And then you set yourself up for long-term success. Not by arranging circumstances so that every day will be as easy as it possibly can be, but rather setting wheels in motion so as to help keep you on track for your long-term objectives, for Jesus' long-term objectives for you. Commit as fully as you possibly can in this moment. And don't wait for the last minute. Jesus tells a series of stories in Matthew 24 and 25 about accountability, about a time of reckoning, whether you're talking about end time circumstances, whether you're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, or as I like to generally apply these things, any moment in time when we get to show the Lord and show ourselves what kind of a person we are, what kind of commitment we have. In Matthew 24, verse 45, we read, 
Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We are going to be judged for our choices. And it may seem in the short term like we may get away with a sub-adequate service. But Jesus wants us all in, all the time. And if we decide to pick and choose when we are going to be loyal to him, we are going to wind up short. Don't judge on a day-to-day basis whether it's a good day or a bad day to serve Jesus. Whether serving your so-called long-term interests is the best thing to do in the short term. It's always the best thing to do, no matter what your short-term situation is. And I hasten to add in this context, there will be short-term losses. There will be times when serving long-term interests interferes with short-term interests. We have to be prepared to take losses in the short term to pursue long-term goals. That's true in any context, whether you're trying to win an Olympic medal, whether you're trying to run a four-minute mile, whether you're trying to cure cancer or any other thing that you may want to accomplish in this life, and certainly anything that we want to accomplish in spiritual realms. There are going to have to be sacrifices, and we're not necessarily going to be happy about that, but we are blessed in that. And that's what Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10, 11, and 12. And this is one of those passages where it becomes more and more important for us to not blur the line between being blessed and being happy. I know some versions will use the word happy in their translation here. That really gives the wrong impression. Happy sounds like it's a short-term kind of thing. We're not talking about short-term things here. We're talking about the life that is best for you in the long term. And Jesus says of that life, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what Jesus tells you here, that you serve me at all times. And when it starts going poorly, when you see that there are opportunities left on the table for your personal growth, for what might seem, in fact, to be spiritual growth, it's never the right thing to deviate from God's plan for your life. Choose this path. Choose it as early as you possibly can. And then stick to that path. Maintain your commitment to Jesus. Maintain your commitment to spiritual things. And when that means not succeeding in some area where you would, under normal circumstances, like to succeed, you count that to be a blessing by continually committing to Jesus' things, by continuing to deny yourself your own things. You are showing yourself to be the kind of person that God has always valued, the kind of person that we have upheld in our walk with faith, people who have made tremendous sacrifices because they viewed spiritual things, the things of God, as being more important than carnal things. You can be that kind of person and set an example for those who are coming after you. You can be the kind of Christian that God wants you to be. If you will always keep the prize in front of you, keep your eyes set on heaven, keep your eyes set on Jesus, never deviate from that plan. Be loyal to him 
every hour of every day. That is the kind of person that God will reward in the end. You have been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.